Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is George Miley, and we are continuing our recording of the series of teachings, Maturing Toward Holiness in the Inner Life. And we are now dealing with the first teaching in that series, Restore the Ancient Anointings. And we've come to our second session that belongs to Restore the Ancient Anointings, and we are beginning to talk about spiritual strongholds, hard ground. As you've already discerned from the first session, it's hard to introduce this series without telling you a little bit of Hannah and my history, our background. We, we're coming from somewhere, and the things that we'll be teaching are the result of personal experience. And so when I think of spiritual strongholds, that also brings me to another part of our history that's different from the Eiffel and Gemund and Hannah's background as a Jewish Holocaust survivor. Hannah and I spent the first 20 years of our ministry lives focused on evangelism. We started off in Europe. Hannah is a European after she left Germany, grew up in England, and we were part of the ministry in the in the 1960s of Operation Mobilization. That was such a wonderful experience for us. And in 1963, OM, as Operation Mobilization came to be known, had a big campaign throughout Europe, particularly focused on Belgium and France and Spain and, and Austria and Italy, going everywhere, hitting every village with Christian literature and testimony. I got my start with OM in Paris, working in the Bidonville, where the North African immigrants lived, but also among French people. And so we came in first-hand contact with the fact that Europe can be identified as hard ground. It's a place where when you want to proclaim the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, it's not always the case that you'll find a sympathetic hearing. Hannah went from a ministry in Europe. She didn't leave it, but she went from there to Israel and spent two years in Israel. That was in the 1960s as well. And that was also an environment for her where, particularly as a Jew, just an awful lot of Israelis didn't really want to hear about the Lord Jesus. So it was an experience of hard ground. I went to India and India transformed me. I, I, I fell in love with India in a way that has never left me. And yet, particularly in the North, it's, it's hard ground. I remember, I remember us preaching in the marketplaces in UP and Bihar and Orissa and West Bengal. And, you know, just a small fraction of the population were in any sense followers of the Lord Jesus. And so all of this was an experience of hard ground. Now, as our experience with OM developed, we also were more and more part of the overall leadership of the mission. So it wasn't just that we were involved in Europe and Israel and India. We were also involved in an indirect way with ministries in the Middle East, ministries in Turkey, ministries in Iran, ministries in the Arabian Gulf. I remember in the December of 1967, I was with a group of four men. This was before Hannah and I were married. We were hitchhiking from Brussels out to India. And I spent Christmas in Istanbul going around and putting 
invitations to a Bible correspondence course in the mailboxes in Istanbul. And so we knew the people who had pioneered OM's work in Turkey in 1961. And so, not because we were anything or even planned it, but the Lord seemed to be giving us an experience of hard ground in many, many different parts of the world. So the question comes, why is there so little fruit in some areas of the world? Why is that? Why have these areas been hard in evangelism? Why is there so little fruit? And how does ground get to be so hard? I remember one day in Bombay, now Mumbai, I organized a day of track distribution. And we used the railways, you know, in, in India in those days, there was two local train lines, Western Railway and Central Railway. And so we told all the Christians in Bombay, look, you know, we're going to have tracks at every train station. So all you have to do is go to the train station and get tracks, whatever the tracks in all the different languages. And you can join us, you know, for whatever time you have available to help us give out the word of God. So we even got rubber thumbs because, you know, in India, there's so many people. If you're standing at the entranceway to the train station, people coming out, you can't get the tracks through your hands quick enough. You'll miss too many people. So we got rubber thumbs that people could use, help them give out the tracks. We gave out 500,000 tracks in one day, if you can believe it. I mean, that's a lot of tracks. Of course, there are a lot of railway stations, too, and a lot of people. And I remember walking through the city of Mumbai the next day and asking myself, you know, is this city any different than it was yesterday before we gave out all those tracks? And I had to wonder. Then the next kind of season for us were the ships, the ships with the Ministry of OM. First was the ship Lagos. In 1971, I was asked to be the uh, director of Lagos. We would go to 20 ports a year with the Ministry of Evangelism and discipleship, and we would try to focus on the places that were the most unreached. God blessed the ministry of the Logos. He taught us how to develop leaders. We were developing leaders that gave us the leaders that we needed to launch the ship Dulos. And I was directing both of those ships, and we were undergoing 40 programs a year, total missionary force of around 500 people involving both ships. And again, evangelism, 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 wherever we went, we were seeking to do evangelism. And all of that was, again, teaching us and bringing us into personal experience of what happens when the seed is sown on hard ground. In 1985, we completed our service with Logos and Dulos. We had been with Logos and Dulos for 15 years, five years before that in Europe and Israel and India. And so our beautiful, wonderful, life-transforming time with OM had come to an end, and the Lord was leading us into the next arena of service that he had for us. In 1987, Antioch Network was born. Ancient anointings. What does all this have to do with ancient anointings? So let's talk just for a minute about Jesus' ministry strategy, or what we've talked about so far has been just a lot of missionary work, so maybe we could call it Jesus' missionary strategy. How did Jesus go about his strategy of missions? Well, a lot we could say about that. First of all, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. That was the gospel that Jesus announced. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
has come near. The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, and then he demonstrated the presence of the kingdom. So he proclaimed the presence of the kingdom and then demonstrated the presence of the kingdom with miracles, signs, healings, all the things that he did to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, was actually near. Transformed lives are manifestations of the king's presence. Christ-likeness formed in broken people, that's all of us, is a miracle of God's healing. So let me say that again. When a life is transformed, when people see a person who once was like this, but now is like something very different, they see Christ formed in this person, that manifests the fact that the kingdom of God is real. So the proclamation of the gospel is absolutely about the removal of guilt, but it's also about healing. It's about cleansing. It's about reforming the inner life in the direction of the inner life that Jesus has. And those transforming people, people transformed like that, manifest the presence of God's kingdom. Christ-likeness is indispensable to Christian work. Christ-likeness is indispensable to the message preached. Now, we don't want to get sidetracked here, but follow me in this thought. What is the gospel we're preaching? If it is a gospel of how to get to heaven when you die, thankfully, that is involved. Absolutely. So, thank you, Lord. Knowing you, believing in you, following you, being transformed by you is about being with you for all eternity. Thank you that it's that way. But it's about more than that. It's about what we've been talking about, the power of God to transform us into new people. So Christ-likeness is indispensable to the message preached. It's indispensable to the preacher's life because when we are involved in Christian ministry and we are fruitful, the more fruit is born through our ministry, the more the enemy is out to destroy us. And here we get back to what we were talking about in the first session. Far too often we have an experience of the Lord only to find that experience short-circuited because the inner transformation has not taken place. So the preacher's life, Christ-likeness is indispensable to the fruit of the preaching. Those who hear, those who believe, as they believe, we bring them to maturity in Christ. Christ-likeness is indispensable to the Christian community. Why is that? Because, again, the minute the new believers are gathered together in community, the church, the enemy is out to divide the church and to bring all kind of disruption and dysfunction and divisions among us. Diversity is an expression of God's greatness. Division is an expression of man's sin. Division is an expression 
of Christ-likeness not yet formed in the inner life. So it came to the point in my own life when the Lord began to take me on a journey into church history because I was grappling with some of the challenges that we were experiencing in Christian ministry. And as the Lord began to take me through a journey down in church history, he began with the life of St. Anthony of Egypt. Anthony lived in the third and fourth centuries. Anthony grew up in the increasingly hedonistic Roman culture all around him. And Anthony made the decision, you know, I'm not going to let the sin, the brokenness, the darkness of the culture all around me form me. I'm going to go out into the desert and I'm going to let God form me. I want to be in a place where God can shape me in the way he wants to shape me. So Anthony went out into the desert. And soon there were other people that went out with him. They also got this idea. Listen, this culture all around us is dark. It's seeking to shape us. We don't want to be shaped by the culture. We want to be shaped by God. And this, of course, was the origin of the desert fathers and mothers, a phenomenon of the third and fourth centuries, where people would go out into the deserts of Egypt and Palestine and Syria to seek God, to be with God, to learn from God. Now, when I think of Anthony and the spiritual fathers and mothers, interestingly enough, it makes me think of John the Apostle. Why is that? John the Apostle... I like to call him John the Beloved. John the Beloved had a very different apostolic legacy than Paul. Paul was a doer. Praise God for Paul. He was a doer. He was a mover. He was a traveler. He was a church planter. He was just doing things and making things happen. John the Beloved was the apostle of the contemplative life. He leaned on Jesus' breast. And it has been said, he that leans on Jesus' breast hears the heart of God. And so John, the apostle of the contemplative life, discipled Polycarp. So Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp lived in the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century. And Polycarp was burned at the stake for his faith in Christ at the age of 86. And the Roman consul called on him, Polycarp, deny Christ and you will save your life. And Polycarp said, how can I deny him with whom I have walked all these years? And so Polycarp submitted to the flames rather than give up his faith. He was a spiritual son of John, a spiritual grandson of Jesus, Polycarp. Then we get to Irenaeus. Irenaeus of Lyon was influenced by Polycarp. So Irenaeus is a spiritual grandson of John. And once we get to Irenaeus, we're in the century of Anthony. So I can't prove to you that there's a connection in all this, but traditionally down through church history, that it has been seen that the spiritual line flows from the apostle John to Polycarp to Irenaeus to Anthony and the Desert Fathers, and then goes beyond there to the Celtic Church. And you know, the Celtic Church, spiritual father Patrick, the Celtic Church was a powerful missionary church, powerful, powerful spiritual legacy. And the tradition that the Celtic Church itself shared with us is that their line went through 
Anthony and the Desert Fathers and, and Polycarp. So all of a sudden, I was being exposed to this rich history throughout church history. It wasn't just that God was working here and working there every now and then. Throughout church history, in the midst of all of the dysfunction that we referred to earlier, there has been this spiritual line of those who have known God and loved God and gone deep with God. And so many of them are our spiritual fathers and mothers. One person in this line that I love to think about is Willie Broad. Willie Broad was a Celtic missionary who came to the Eiffel. Actually, there's a village in the south of the Eiffel called Taufenbach. And it was originally called Taufenbach. And Taufen in German is the word that means baptize. And Bach is the word that means creek. And there is a place where there's a creek that flows into the river Kiel. And Willie Broad went there. It was a pagan worship site. And he went there and planted a cross there and baptized the uh, pagans that were coming to Christ. So here we have this, <laughs> this connection with the Celtic church that flows all the way into the Eiffel. And the more I got to processing through church history, the more I just saw in every period of history, there have been those who have loved God and known God and walked with God and have carried within them the transforming life of the risen Christ. And those who have been transformed by God have been mighty instruments, vehicles through whom God has been able to work to bring his light to a darkened and dysfunctional world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the love of God. Thank you for sending your Son for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and bearing in your own body the consequence of our sin. Lord, you have risen, and we have risen with you. And you have come to transform people, and you do transform people. Oh, Lord, we hunger for you. Make us like you, Lord Jesus, that we might know you and love you and walk with you and be your instruments in a lost and broken, dying world. Do this, our Father, for Christ's glory we pray in his name. Amen.